open your Bible to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. And we're going to be starting in a moment in verse number 30. The gospel frees us from addiction to self. Let's talk about that. Let's read our text today, verse 30 down to 37. Then they departed from there. There is the base of Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus has just cast the demon out of this little boy. And they kind of, I'm, I'm imagining this, that the, the crowd is rejoicing. Jesus grabs his 12 fellows and they kind of sneak out the back door. They departed from there and passed through Galilee. And he didn't want anyone to know it. So incognito, they got away. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. Look at verse 32. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they were silent. For on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. This is the word of the Lord today. May God be honored as we explore it together. And may God's spirit bring us to the proper interpretation and application to our lives. Before Christ redeems us and sets us free, we're like crack addicts addicted to ourselves. Isn't that true? We're like alcoholics intoxicated with the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. We're not very much interested in serving as we are being served. Am I telling the truth today? We're we're not as interested in giving as we are in getting. We're not nearly as interested in pursuing God's way as we are in getting our own way. And we're not interested in being the least, but in being the greatest. (laughs) I'm just being honest in church today. And everything about this, everything that Jesus is trying to offer his men, listen, listen, is seemingly the opposite of what they're chasing. And I just want to stop right there. Could that be true of you and I today? Everything that God is is offering us, which is so much better than what you're playing with today, 
It's the opposite of what we're after. You know what the good news hidden in there is? The antidote. I obviously need a new heart, which gives me new desires. Amen? I love that. These fellows were pretty sure of a few things. <laughs> One of the things they were sure of, the opposite of verse 30 and 30 32, is that the way to greatness is not by obedience that leads to death. Nope, that's not how you do it, Jesus. And they were pretty sure that the way to greatness was not in being last or the servant of all, verses 33 to 38. And they were fairly convinced that it was certainly not in having others do what we can't. In verses 38 to 41. And it for sure wasn't in pursuing a life of self-denial that involves some serious suffering. That's not the way to greatness, verses 42 to 50. And yet, listen, that's exactly what Jesus says as he lays before us the true road to greatness. Greatness as defined by God. Ours is a world in which everything is about who? Me. Yep, all about me. Oh, I got a good news for you today. Jesus died to free us from that slavery. Amen. There is such freedom on the other side of that. He, he died to free us to serve and to walk a road of true greatness. The road that he himself walked as he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark 10, 45, that's in the very next chapter. Amen? I see three, this is, and it's where I got the title from today. I see three pitfalls on the path to discipleship in the back half of chapter 9. The first one is division. The second one is the pitfall of exclusion. And the last one is the pitfall of corruption. Now, we're only going to deal with the first one today. It's a one-point sermon. You say, well, I got six points or five points. I don't even remember what I put in there. That's just, that's just walking through the verses. So today, we're just going to deal with that first one. So number one, I, I, I just call this the pothole of division and the YBH of how to repair it. Nothing divides like pride. Isn't that true? And without I, you can't even spell pride. And you get rid of I and there's no more pride. Let me give you some context here. Backing up a little bit. They've, they've got a 25-mile walk. That's a long walk, by the way. I've, I've hiked 20 miles in a day. Now, granted, it was in the mountains. But 20 miles in a day, you are whooped. But these guys are used to walking. I, I, I don't know. They had a 25-mile walk, and it, thankfully it was mostly downhill, from Mount Hermon to Capernaum, where Peter's house was. So I don't know how long that takes, but that takes the better part of a full day of walking. <coughs> and Jesus is using this time, this full day, with just his 12. They snuck out the back door, Nobody saw them. They got out of there, and it's just them. Jesus is focusing on his men. He's teaching them. He's training them. He's, he's displaying to them what true transparency looks like. And verse 31, the Bible says, 
for he taught his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is being betrayed, that's present tense currently, into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. This is the second time Jesus has come right out and told them what was going to happen at, at the Passover feast in Jerusalem that year. And it was right around the corner. So in just a short time, Jesus was heading to Jerusalem for the feast with his men as he had done before. Only this time it was going to be different. And he's warning them. He might just jot this down. You'll find the first time in chapter 8, verse 31. And that's the time when Peter said, hey, uh, Jesus, that's not going to happen. You remember that? And Jesus basically calls Peter Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. You have no taste for the things of God. That didn't go over very well. So now he tells them again in very short succession. It hadn't been all that long since chapter 8. Comes out and plainly tells them what's going to happen. He is preparing them, even though they are unwilling to receive it right now. He's preparing them in advance. Aren't you glad he does that with us? Aren't you glad that the Lord, he, he prepares us in advance, even, even though at the moment we're not willing or ready to receive it? He gives it to us anyway because he knows when it happens, we're going to need to hang on to that truth. Ever happened to you in your life? He is so faithful that way. Look at verse 32. This is a mind-boggling thing. But they, that's his disciples, did not understand this saying and they were afraid to ask him. And didn't get it. And not only did they not get it, they were afraid to ask. Have you ever been told there's no such thing as a dumb question? It's not true. <laughs> there's a lot of dumb questions. I've been asked a bunch of them. And I've asked a bunch of dumb questions in my life. Right? But these fellows, they, they did not understand this saying. Had Jesus ever referred to himself up to now as the Son of Man? Yes. Yeah, it was, one of his, it was his favorite third person reference to himself. They knew that. So they knew who the Son of Man was. That he was talking about him. And I'm pretty sure they knew who men are, right? He, they, he, they knew that these scribes and Pharisees that had made that 70-mile journey from Jerusalem just to get evidence against Jesus, that they hated him and they wanted Jesus gone. They could probably connect that dot. Well, it's probably the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious leaders are going, to get, are going to kill him. And then three days later, he's going to rise from the dead. Not that hard to understand. But why is that not hard for us to understand? We're on the other side of it. Right? We know the rest of the story. They're living it. And they're living it in such a way that it's not dissimilar from our, a lot of our end times views. A lot of us are steeped in a specific tradition of how the end times are going to play out. Well, what would happen if God in his sovereignty switched that up on you? And all of a sudden you're here during what we call the tribulation. Was that going to mess up our theology? Yeah. Right? There's a lot of what ifs about, but we're so committed to an eschatological, that's what that word for end time, study of end time. We are so committed to a specific eschatological worldview that even God himself can't change our mind. 
That's where these guys were with the Messiah. They were taught from boys for centuries, from little children. The Messiah's going to come. He's going to be the son of King David. He's going to sit on a throne forever. And Israel's going to rule the world. We're going to be somebody again. And ultimately, that's true. But it's not going to be the kind of kingdom they were thinking of. And they can't receive it. Has, has the Lord ever tried to tell you something you could not receive? They did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him. We talked about this earlier. Why do you think they were afraid to ask Jesus what he meant? What do you think? Huh? Ah, I think that's a big part of it, Jay. They didn't want the answer. <laughs> they were afraid of what the answer was going to be. Because they didn't have a space in their, in their theology to fit a suffering Savior, only a reigning king. You see, they had preconceived ideas about what God was supposed to do. And that death, a suffering Savior, didn't fit. That makes sense today? Be careful pointing the finger at them. We're very much like them. Think about it too. It wasn't that long ago. Matter of days, maybe weeks at the most, that Jesus had told them the first time. And when Peter told him, I don't think so, Peter got a really stern rebuke. And so they're like, and Jesus had just rebuked everybody at the, at the bottom of Mount Hebron, and nobody was signing up for another rebuke. Well, I don't want to get yelled at. <laughs> right? They didn't want, maybe they didn't want to look stupid. I don't know, but they were afraid to answer. So that's what we see. This is all context. Now look at verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum. And when he was in a house, he asked them, what was it you disputed about when, you're on, by, when among yourselves on the road? In other words, hey guys, what was it you were arguing about as we walked here today? I could hear you guys were starting to get in a heated argument about something. So what were you all arguing about? Don't you hate it when God asks you questions? <laughs> First of all, in the previous verse, they had a question that they were afraid to ask. Now they were asked a question they were afraid to answer. <laughs> By the way, the disciples are not having a great day. They're not having a great day. So, oh, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. I think they would have disagreed with you right here. <laughs> right? First, Jesus asked them a question. First, they had a question of Jesus, but nope, they were too scared to ask it. Now, Jesus asked them a question that they're, they're too afraid to answer, lest they incriminate themselves. Verse 34, we find out what it is. I love this, but they kept silent. They didn't answer him. They did this, zip their lip. And we know why, don't we? Mark tells us. For on the road, they argued amongst themselves about who would be the greatest. What did Jesus just told them? He's going to die. He's going to suffer and die. 
and three days later be resurrected. Now, if you're his follower expecting him to set up an earthly kingdom, do you not have like a thousand questions about that? I would, I think. Right? How's that fit? All this stuff. It's like, it's like they were deaf. And spiritually, they were. They could not accept a dead Messiah. And so they just ignored it. And they said, okay, so when we do get there and he's the king of the world, uh, who's going to be secretary of state? Who's the vice president? That's what they're arguing about. And you know Peter, James, and John said, well, it's going to be one of us three because I don't know if you all recognize it, but we're the only three that got invited up the mountain. Oh, and we can't tell you what happened up there. It's our little secret because Jesus and us were tight. I hate those kind of people, don't you? <laughs> right? Right? Can you see it? And, and, and you fellas, you nine down below, you couldn't even cast out a little demon. Psh, you're not the favorite. Please. Please. And they're having this argument. And I imagine it's getting pretty heated. <clears throat> All right? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be vice president? And you notice they never answered Jesus' question. But Jesus knew the answer. Now be careful here. He said, oh, Jesus knew the answer because he was God. Careful. Jesus knew the answer because he wasn't dumb. You're walking an entire day, 25 miles. You think Jesus isn't picking up on that conversation? He knows exactly what they're... And how discouraging must that have been for Jesus? I mean, he's reaching, he's telling them the, the hardest news he's ever had to announce. And they ignore him. Be like, like... I heard a story one time about a fellow went to the doctor and he was feeling right. And the doctor took a bunch of tests and he, uh, he said, Mr. Mr. Johnson, I need you to go sit in the waiting room. I need to send your wife in here. And so he's, the wife comes in, he goes out. And the wife comes in and the doc says, your husband's got a rare disease and is 100% terminal. He don't have long to live at all. He said, but there is a cure. We don't know why it works, but we know it works. She said, what is it? He said, it's you. Me? What do I got to do? He said, whatever he wants. You got to become his servant. Hot meal, whatever it is. Make sure, every, make sure his life is heaven on earth. And he'll, in about two weeks, he'll be fine. If you don't, he'll die. So they're driving home, and it's real quiet in the car. And finally, the husband says, well, what did the doctor tell you? And, and she said, you're going to die. <laughs> Yeah, all the fellows are looking at their wives. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor said, you're going to die. <laughs> I don't even know where I was going with that. That was a good joke. <laughs> oh. Yeah, Jesus knew the answer. He was catching bits and pieces of that conversation. He knew what they were doing. Imagine being told you're trying to tell your spouse that you're going to die. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. But did you know the insurance on a car is due? What, what is that? Insurance on a car? What? What? Oh, oh, and don't forget, next week, you got to take the kids to baseball practice. I'm trying to tell you I have a terminal. To, don't you even what? Think about what this was like from Jesus' point of view. 
I'm with Alistair Begg, the great Scottish preacher. He said in his Scottish brogue, if I was Jesus, I'd have fired the disciples and started over with the ladies. Because <laughs> they got it. So this, this first pothole or pitfall on the path of discipleship is division. And her parents' pride and self-promotion. So, so play, pay close attention to the text here. And we're just going to walk through these eyes pretty quickly, so don't, don't fear. Let's look, at, let's look at it, number one. Look at, look at what's happening here in verse 35. All right? Nobody's given themselves up in verse 34. So, in verse 35, what's the first word say? And he what? Sat down. I, I just call that initiation. Why? Because he's considered a rabbi or a teacher and all rabbis or teachers in Jerusalem they had followers or disciples and when a rabbi was getting ready to teach officially teach some important truth unlike our culture today where I stand behind the pulpit the rabbi would sit and when the rabbi sat it was a sign to, the, to his disciples he was about to say something really important and lay some good truth on them so I just call that initiation. So Jesus gives him a verbal cue. He sits down. A former rabbi, I'm fixing to teach you something. And I see invitation. Not only does he sit, look at this verse, uh, 35. And he sat down and he called the 12 to him. So, so look, they're still clueless. They don't get the message. Normally, your job was to keep your eye on your rabbi. You were to, a good disciple was to anticipate the needs of his rabbi so that he would never even need to ask for a cup of water. They would anticipate it, get it, and have it for him before he even asked. You were to be attentive as a disciple, and they are falling down on their job. Jesus sits down, nobody even notices. So Jesus has to call them. Hey, fellas, gather around. I got something I want to I want to share with you. I want to teach you something. So that's invitation. He calls the 12 to him. And then I see inversion. And this is where Jesus is going to lay some truth on them that they're not ready for, but later it's going to serve them so well. Inversion. Look what it says. Here's what he says to them. If anyone desires to be, what's that word, church? First, he shall be last of all and Here's a worse word than last. Servant of all. The word order here is really instructive in, in, the, in the language. It literally says this. He shall be of all last and of all servant. It puts the emphasis on order. You are to be the lowest of the low the least promoted person in the, in the band. Now, I want you to pick up on what Jesus is not saying. This is important. Jesus is not repudiating greatness. He's not rejecting the desire to be great. He's redefining it. He's redefining it. He's not saying wanting to be great is bad. You know, I want you to be great. I want you to want to be great. But let me tell you what great is. You got the definition of great wrong. I think that's up there on that slide, Sam. 
Might want to check that. <coughs> there you go. I just wanted you to be able to write that down. All right? Jesus doesn't repudiate greatness. He redefines it. He gives them a different understanding of what it means to be great. And then he says, now that you understand what kingdom greatness is, chase after that. F.B. Meyer said this once, I used to think God's gifts were on the shelves, one above the other, and that the taller we grew in Christian character, the easier it would be to reach them. I now find that God's gifts are on shelves, one beneath the other. It is not a question of growing taller, but of stooping lower. That we have to go down, always down, to get his best gifts. That's something. What a, what a good word today. Um, I'm not sure you're getting it, so let me give you a, let me give you a test. I'm, I call this my painful pride test. You ready? Here's the painful pride test. Answer each question with a simple yes or no. You all understand the parameters? All right, here we go. You can write down your answer. If you're really bold, no, I'm not going to say that. I'll cause marital problems in here. <laughs> I don't have that many counseling slots open for this week. <laughs> Number one, does it matter to me if I get the recognition for a job well done? Does it matter to me if I get the credit when I do a good job? Do I like, number two, and even long to sit at the head table or in the seat of honor? Number three, do I seek credit for what others have done? Number four, do honorary titles pump me up? Number five, is popularity crucial to my sense of self-worth? Think about that one real hard. Is popularity essential to my sense of self-worth? Number six, am I a name dropper of those I know or pretend to know? I got a friend of mine, God bless him. He's the biggest name dropper I ever heard. And I was with him one time and I finally said, brother, I couldn't care less about those people. I don't know anybody you're talking about. You're not impressing me. Let's just talk about Jesus. I know him. Come on. It's kind of, it's to the point that's kind of sad that your whole sense of your worth is based on the people you know in some setting. Number seven, do, you, do I think I have something valuable to say about almost everything? Personally, I, I do think that, but <laughs> don't we? Well, I got something to say. Proverbs eleven twelve says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. James 4, 6 adds, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is Jesus telling them? By the way, let's back up into the context again. He asked him, what was it you fellows were arguing about? all day long as you obviously weren't listening to me you had your own agenda well we ain't telling you there's no fifth amendment yet that comes much later with the United States <laughs> they can't plead the fifth <laughs> and so Jesus lets them know I know what you were talking about he says I'm going to sit down you guys come here let me tell you how this thing works you got it backwards let me redefine greatness for you You want to be first, you got to be last and a servant of all. And notice he doesn't say you need to serve. He says you need to be what? S a servant. What's the difference between serving and being a servant? 
Jessica, you, well, not really, because I know you work in the delivering food, but you've been a waitress, right? And waitresses, how many of you ever waited tables, right? Okay, so, so we can relate. It's serving. Now, yes, it, it, it's, serving is an action that you do, but you have a shift when you're a waitress. You punch in. You, you serve for a specific amount of time, and then you're done serving, right? What is being a servant? What's that? I like it, Linda. Always, there is no punch out. Why? It's not, listen, don't, don't miss this. It's not something you do. Being a servant is someone you are. This was Mark's entire push in his narrative story about Jesus. He said, let me present to you Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Son of God. And he presents to these Roman, mostly Gentile Christians, this narrative of Jesus as the great servant. The great servant. Did, did people in Rome understand servants? You bet. In fact, they, they, they figured when this was written at this time in the first century, and it became a problem later, that there were more servants and slaves in Rome than there were citizens. Rome knew servants. Whether you were a servant or a master, you knew what a servant was. Right? A servant was not an action. It was a person. And Jesus says, you want, to be, you want to be great? Let me redefine greatness for you. Greatness is a servant. And what was Jesus displaying to them? His greatness by his willingness to serve them. So here's a question for you. How, and I just want you to ponder this for a minute. This would be a great thing in the DLTs this week to discuss. Maybe you pray about it, meditate on it, and come up with some better answers than we're going to have right here. What is it about not serving, but also serving, but what is it about embracing the identity of I'm a servant, I don't, I don't, I, I'm laying down my rights, you know, I, I want to I be someone who serves. And I say this all the time, but some of you hadn't heard it. Uh, Pastor Andy from, from northern Canada pastored a, literally a small Bible church out in the tundra. Um, he was preaching here in Macon a few years ago, and I heard him say these words. He said this, everybody wants to be a servant until you're treated like one. Yeah. Woo! How many of you mamas have ever said, what is wrong with those kids? Do they think I'm, I'm here to be their servant? Instead of despising that role, we should embrace it. God has given you an opportunity to be. Now, does that mean your kids need to know how to, don't need to worry about taking care of them? No, no, I'm not saying that. But it's your heart attitude in that. Right? Everybody wants to be a servant until somebody actually treats you like a servant. Then, then we're like, nope, time out. What is, what is that? I'm better than that. I know I'm hoeing in some of y'all's pee pads this morning. But how is it, how does being a servant kill pride? How is, how is being a servant a pride assassin? Think about it for a minute. 
If, if your identity is just to serve the people that God put around you, and you don't, you don't require the credit, acknowledgement, nothing. How does that kill pride? Oh, Brian. The focus is no longer on you. And you know what? That's freedom. Freedom. He's trying to tell those disciples that. And eventually they're going to get it, but not today. How are you doing in that servant capacity? So I got a little homework for you. And we're almost done. These last two go really fast. Here it is. Here's your homework. You're probably not going to be transformed into a servant between today and your doing life together group on either Tuesday or Wednesday. Or even by this time next Sunday. But we can make steps there. And I don't have this all fleshed out in my mind. But I got to thinking this morning. Servant and serving. Now serving is what servants do. Because of who they are. Well if you're not a servant. But you're serving. Of course you're in control of everything still. And you, can, you, can, you can punch out anytime you want to. But what if. What if. What if there is a way to serve your way into servanthood? So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to ask the Lord to open your eyes to ways that you can... Here it is. Now, don't, don't, get this, don't miss this part. That you can serve in hiddenness. Serve in hiddenness. Secretly serve. Your family, people at work. You know those people that never empty the coffee pot grounds? What is wrong with those people? They're certainly not Christians. Right? Uh, there's, so, there's so many simple options. And do it. Nobody needs to know. I think it was C.S. Lewis said that the flesh, uh, the flesh winces at, at serving. But the flesh revolts at serving in hiddenness. <laughs> the flesh will, will absolutely rebel and rise up in arms if you're going to serve and do it with no credit. You ask Jesus this week, open my eyes where I can serve my spouse, where I can serve my children, where I can serve my church, where I can serve my work, where I can serve my neighbor and do it so that nobody knows but God and myself, and that's it, and I leave it there. You say, why, why do you want me to do that? Because that's going to tell you whether you have a servant, or whether you're a servant by identity or not, because your, your flesh is going to hate that. Does that make sense today? Try it. That's your homework. Martin Luther said this, God created... God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Real quick, verse 36. They weren't getting it. They weren't getting it. And so they needed an illustration. That's the next I. Look, what, look at the illustration. Then he took a little child and set them in the midst of them. And when he had taken them in his arms, he said to them. Now check this out. 
Here's Jesus' illustration. They weren't getting it. And, and, and Jesus said, okay, okay let, let me explain it to you another way. And he takes a kid. Now, we're in Peter's house, right? Uh, in, in Capernaum. It's not like it was just Peter and his wife. We know his mother-in-law lived there because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. So these were multi-generational homes, and this particular home was a big one. Was there, there's, so probably more than one generation lived there. In other words, there are going to be kids everywhere. You come to my house any given Sunday afternoon, and there's going to be grandkids all over the place. It's wonderful. Um, and so Jesus is there teaching, and these kids are toddling around or whatever, and he, he just snatches up one of these kids. I love this. He snatches up one of these kids, and the Bible says it's a boy. He stands him in the middle of the circle. So Jesus is sitting, his guys are standing around, and he just stands them there. And I think, this is not in the text, but here's what, here's what I think is happening. I think as he puts this little kid in the middle of the circle, Jesus is, is taking an inventory on the reaction of his disciples to this kid. Because what have they just been arguing about for about eight hours? Who's the greatest? They're all about, and here's this kid. Now we know the disciples aren't going to get this because in the next chapter, when the mothers bring the babies to Jesus to touch and bless, those very same guys say, get those kids out of here. What's the matter with you people? We're doing big stuff here. So I'm imagining, I don't think I'm wrong, I, I'm imagining as he sets this little kid in the, in the circle, they're giving very disdaining looks. Like, get that kid out of here. What, we're, you're, you're supposed to be teaching us about being a servant. What's that kid got to do with anything? Now, now look at the next part of the text. He puts them in the midst of them, and then it looks like, look at this, and when he had taken him in his arms. So Jesus, I don't think Jesus just picks him up. I think Jesus scoops him up. Y'all know what that's like? Man, when, when I go to see my grand Paul, little Paul John, I love that every time we see each other, it happened this morning, he runs up to me and gives me a big hug. Right? Jesus scoops his kid up in his arms. And he's making an example, an illustration of a servant. You're not getting last of all. You, you, you got, you're still fighting for preeminence and prominence, position and power. You are so stinking prideful. Now, I got to say, in the first century, they didn't care much for kids. They really didn't. Mortality rate was so high until a kid was 10 or 11 years old. Honestly, especially men, had nothing to do with their own children, hardly, because they probably weren't going to make it, and they didn't want to get too attached. Isn't that terrible? Where do you think the saying, children should be seen and not what? Her comes from the first century. In, in, in the ancient world, kids were barely a notch above slaves. And my father embraced that. He brought that back to the gentle household. We were slaves, I promise you. <laughs> Jonathan's shaking his head, you know, right? I cut that off at my house. My, my children were, yeah. Oh, don't listen to those people in the balcony. They just need to repent. <laughs> right? Children were not valued. Today, we have way overdone it. Children are way overvalued and fawned over, and we're not helping them. We're not helping them to understand their place in the world and what it is to be a servant in the freedom of walking in that. 
we way got that thing out of it. But boy, in the first century, pff, kids were nothing. Especially the men, grown men. Come on. And Jesus scoops this kid up. And then he gives them the intention. And this is the last one in verse 37. Look at this. This is beautiful. As he's, as he's hugging this toddler, who's probably squirming. And he's probably, I think Jesus is smiling. With a smile, he says, whoever receives one of these little ones in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Guys. Guys. You want to be great? Wake up. You look right over these little kids. Why? Because they have nothing to offer you. They're only in the debit category in your home. And they really are. Little kids, they just work. That's why God made them cute. If God didn't make them cute, no child will survive out of infanthood. It's true. And they're falling from the womb. They're vipers and diapers, man. I'm telling you. Kids are naughty. They're sinful. They're smelly. They're cantankerous. The world is all about them. That's why God makes them so beautiful and cute. So we'll keep them. Right? He says, guys, guys, look, look. Just like I've received this one. I'm hugging this little squirming Jewish boy. That's how you need to receive me. If you receive this child in my name because of me, because if you serve this little kid who you've done nothing your whole adult life but look over them and your culture's taught you that, if you open your eyes and see what's around you, and if you will just receive this kid in my name, you're, you're, you're not just receiving this nobody, this person who can do nothing for you. You're, look, don't, don't miss it. You're receiving me who can do everything for you. I'll never forget Pastor Benny Tate, my sister's pastor, said this one time at a pastor's conference. He said, he said this. He said, so many churches are after the, the, the Fortune 500 church members. And they want to know, God, why, why don't you send me some wealthy church members? And he says, let me tell you what the key to that is. He said, you go after the people who can do nothing for you. He said, and when you go after the people that nobody wants, God will trust you to give you the people everybody wants. Amen. When you receive a child, when you receive a homeless person, when you receive your mother-in-law in Jesus' name, huh? when you receive that family member that drives you nuts, when you receive your neighbor who's crazy and you serve them because of Jesus, you receive Jesus. And when you get Jesus, listen, you don't just get Jesus, you get the Father. And then that person who could do nothing for you leads you to the person who has done everything for you, who leads you to the Father who has prepared it all for His glory, and you are brought into something so much bigger than your puny dreams. Am I making sense this morning? That's what, that's what Jesus is trying to tell them. And I wish I could have written verse 38, but God didn't let me. I would write it very different, that history. 
This is for next week, but look at verse 38. Here's how well they got it. Such, such quick learners. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he didn't follow us. Yeah, they got that lesson. Oh, my word. If I'm Jesus, I'm punching people in the face right now. I'm just telling you, all should be happy. I'm, mm-mm. No, I am doing smack down on the 12 if I'm Jesus right now. They need such a beating, such a beating, right? And that's, my, that's what my flesh does. I, but I close, I heard a sermon yesterday by a dear friend of mine, Tom, Pastor Tommy Freeman, and it was called Leaving Room for God to Work. And we tend, I tend, we tend, the disciples tend, tended to say, all right, here's the truth. Respond or die. And, and you know what? If you're just going to be a jerk and if you're going to be deaf and you don't, you don't care about this incredible truth I'm trying to lay on you, we don't say this, but our actions do, to hell with you. You say, Pastor, you said... You said to hell with you. Yeah, I did. And you know what? You know what's worse than saying to hell with you? Living it out. That's exactly what we say to our children when we're so stinking frustrated with them for doing the same sin over and over and over again. That we say, you know what? You're not even worth correcting. To hell with you. Oh, God, break our hearts over that. Because you know what? Jesus knew he had a bunch of idiots for disciples. He knew it. Oh, but listen, he knew that Acts 2 was coming. That the Holy Spirit was coming. And that the Holy Spirit was going to take all of this teaching that they just treated so terribly. And he was going to connect all those dots. And these men were going to change the world. These clueless, heartless foolish men were going to become just like their king in just a little while. So don't give up. You can't give up because he didn't give up on you. I had this great conclusion. I can't even read. I got so many tears in my eyes. Well, God speak to you today. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite our musicians to come. You know, there is an old-fashioned altar down here and lots of other space. You're welcome to come. Get before the Lord today. It might be a good thing. Father, thank you for your patience thank you for reminding us that all lessons though given today aren't for today and that nothing's wasted I thank you that you know us how prideful we are. I thank you that you've given us the antidote to that. 
which is serving our way into being a servant and finding that true freedom and it being so free that we will never go back. Help us. Help us to repent. Trust you again. And Lord, we got some homework this week. We got to serve in silence. We got to secretly serve. I pray that you would open those opportunities even today. And I thank you for conviction and how it's so different from guilt. That conviction drives me to Jesus and guilt pushes me away. So may our burdened hearts be released, set free, as we die to self and live for you. In Jesus' name, amen.